Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to the jar. That's kind of weak, but we'll, we might get there. <laughs> hey, uh, we are really excited um, that you survived the first snowstorm, okay? And they tell us that within a week, it might melt. So uh, that's your gift, that that might actually happen. Hey, if you would, in your program, there's a card that looks like this. It says you're invited. If you could pull that out for a second, uh, uh, that'd be great. Since we're a little uh, quiet this morning, why don't you just wave it once you have it. There you go. We'll all do the wave. There you go. Okay. Now this, uh, next week, uh, is your invitation not for you to come, but for you to invite someone else. And so you have one week left to invite uh, a co-worker, a neighbor, a friend, uh, someone, anyone, uh, to come and to be with you. Now, last week we had one of these, and so I went to our neighbors and I invited them, and they said yes. And so this next week, what we're going to do is we'll pick up a phone and we'll remind them, because people forget uh, and so we'll remind them, and then Jennifer is actually going to meet them at the lobby. Now, this is the reason why you want to do that, is because when people come for the first time, it takes all the guts that they have just to get to the front door. And if there can actually be someone there at that point to greet them, to uh, help them find out where the donuts are, because we know that's the most important thing, that's why some of you, that's the only reason you come, not because of me, but because of the donuts, and uh, get some water, get some coffee, whatever that is. Show them around, but you have one week for a friend, and this is the reason why, guys, because I really believe that what God wants to do next week in some of the lives of your friends, your coworkers, your neighbors could change their eternity, and you could be the vehicle to do that this Christmas, so I encourage you to do that. Well, somewhere around the year 2000, my sister-in-law, Janelle, and her husband, Jeff, uh, decided that they were going to start a family. And they started, and they found that they had some fertility problems, and they tried for over five years to have a kid, and even with all the fertility procedures that they had gone through, nothing worked. And finally, in 2005, after five years of disappointment and failure, uh, the fertility specialist that was working with them sat them both down and said, I think you need to decide whether you want to be pregnant or whether you want to be a parent. And my sister-in-law, with tears in her eyes, said, I want to be a mom. And so after five years of difficulty of not being able to get pregnant themselves, they decided to go the route of international adoption. They filtered through many different adoption agencies because it's uh, a difficult uh, journey that you have to take. And they finally settled on one particular agency, and they had decided that they wanted to adopt a Hispanic child. And eventually they looked at the different Hispanic countries where children were available, and they decided on the country of Guatemala. 
and several months they had to fill out all of this paperwork. In fact, they showed me a picture in which the paperwork was literally a foot high of papers that they had to fill out. So a foot of papers. Then finally, they were told that they had a child for them in Guatemala. They took an airplane from Indianapolis, and then they took multiple other flights, and they stayed uh, in airports, and uh, they just waited and waited and waited, but finally they landed in Guatemala, but they did not speak the language. And they got off the plane, and the adoption rep was there, and then they took them to a hotel that they did not know, and then there they waited and waited and waited and waited. And it was a very emotional time. Because sometimes what happens in international adoptions is that you can travel all the way to wherever the place is, and even once you get there, sometimes the adoption doesn't fall the way that you would like it to. And so it was a very, very emotional time for them, and we prayed for them afar. Well, finally, after several days, they got their child, a little boy by the name of Josiah, and they returned back to Indianapolis. Now, as a way to kind of introduce our topic this morning, I want to show you just a one-minute clip of kind of what they had experienced uh, during this whole adoption process. The video, they took video along the way, and so as they were taking the video, uh, I got it captured, and then I brought it to somebody who knows how to do a lot more stuff than I do, our guru, Mikey. And Mikey took these hours of videos and kind of uh, deduced them down to uh, this video that you're going to see here in just a second. Now let me kind of set this up for you and what you're going to see. The video is going to show a little bit of their going trip, a little bit of the isolation that they felt of living in a country uh, or being in a country that they did not speak the language, they didn't know anyone. Then you'll see them waiting uh, in the hotel room and how that process transpired. And then you'll see the first time that they saw Josiah, and you'll see the first time that they got to hold Josiah. And then you will see a little bit of them taking their son, and then you will ultimately see all the family uh, greeting them as they got back from uh, Guatemala at the airport. So go ahead and get your Kleenexes. Uh, you're going to need them here. But I promise this is not an attempt to manipulate you. But it's simply to create the emotion of what our scripture that we're going to look, look at today uh, deals with and how it takes a different look at Christmas. So let's watch this video and I'll have a question on the back side.
So let me ask you this question. Do you think it's possible that my sister-in-law, Janelle, and her husband, Jeff, who are wonderful people, do you think it's possible that they have a greater capacity for love than God? Do you think it's possible? Do you think it's possible because they're wonderful people. They did an international adoption. Do you think it's possible that they have a greater capacity for love than God? Now, I think intellectually, all of us would say, no, 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 no. God loves more. God has a greater capacity for love. In fact, if If you're a Christian, you would say this morning that actually the love that was demonstrated by my sister-in-law Janelle and Jeff towards Josiah was simply a reflection of what God's love is ultimately like. It's just an overflow of what God's love is for people. That God has given us the potential to love like that. We can love somebody that we've never even met before. That we could actually invite them to become our son and to bring them home. And God gave me the capacity the very first time in the Indianapolis airport when they arrived for me to love Josiah just like he was a biological child, just like he was a biological nephew. I mean, all the incredible love and nurturing, we would argue that all of that came from God. Which means that what we just watched, as emotional as it was, and and folks, I could give you even more details. I mean, you're talking about five years of waiting for a child. I could give you so much more. And all the bumps and the bruises... And I'm not trying to talk anyone out of international adoption. I I hope we have people that do that. But this is my point. If you knew the whole story, and you knew all of the details, and you knew all of the emotions, and all of the stresses, with all of that that they went through, is it possible for them to have a greater capacity for love than God? Now again, intellectually in our minds we would say, I think that God created that in them. That it is simply a reflection of how God the Father loves. But that He loves so much more. So with this in mind, I want us to look at a passage of Scripture in Galatians chapter 4. Now Galatians was uh, a book... Uh, written by a guy by the name of Paul, 
who wrote about half of the New Testament. And the New Testament's the second half of the Bible, so he wrote about half of that. And this is the cool thing about Paul, is this, that he actually hated Christians. In fact, he despised them. In fact, he, he was a part of the process in which he killed Christians. I bet you know some Christians you might like to kill, right? Especially at Walmart during shopping. And they say, oh, I love Jesus, and then they'll take you know, one of those wrappers and hit you over the side of the head because they want to get to the La La Loopsie doll before you do, right? Now, Paul wrote this letter around 52 A.D., And actually, there is no uh, historical debate on when it was written. It was written in 52 A.D. In fact, uh, people who are non-Christian historians would say, no, that's exactly when that was written. And so he's writing uh, about 20 years after the death of Jesus, and he's writing about 55 years or so from his birth. And the other thing that makes this really, really interesting is that Paul actually got to meet some of the people who were eyewitnesses to everything that happened to Jesus. It's very likely that he met Mary, Jesus' mom, and we know that he had a relationship with a guy by the name of John who was the closest disciple to Jesus. So basically, what this guy is doing is he is writing back as he's talked to these eyewitnesses about what was the birth like, what was the life of Jesus like, what was the crucifixion like, what was the resurrection like. And he looks back then and he writes how he sees the Christmas story. And it relates to you and how it relates to me. Now, Paul primarily writes to a Roman or Greek audience. It is not a Jewish audience. So it's not like uh, people who were waiting for a Messiah. These are people that think there's no way they would even be worthy to be connected to that line. And he writes to Galatia, which is in present-day Turkey in the Middle East, and it's about the size of New York City. And so Paul writes to these multiple churches, and this is what he says. But when the set time had fully come, and we talked about that last week, remember this? We said that all along that God had the date of Jesus' birth on his calendar. He knew exactly when this was going to happen. And for centuries and centuries and centuries, Jewish people waited and waited and waited for a Messiah, a Savior to come, And they were disappointed. And 99.999% of all of them never saw it happen. But finally, it came, even though it felt like it was going to take forever. But when the set time had fully come, God sent His Son, born of a woman. Now let's not rush this too quickly. Here is Paul, who has lived in the first century... And he actually knew the people who lived with Jesus. And after spending some time with them and hearing their story, he came to the conclusion that God had sent a son born of 
a woman. Now, the reason why that doesn't seem very important to you this morning is because we see this story all the time. We see it on television. We see it in nativity scenes. We see it in all the little cute kids and their stories. And we see these perfectly, you know, manicured nails of these actors and their Joseph or their uh, Mary or their the baby Jesus. But in the first century, in this war-torn country, where there's war all around them, Paul, who lived in this century, he knew John, he possibly knew Mary, he came to the conclusion that God actually had sent the, his only son into the world, born of a woman, folks, and that is a big deal during that time. That's something that we have to pay attention to. And he enters into the significance of the story by saying this, but when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the, what's it say? Born under the law. Now here's why that's significant. That Jesus, God's one and only son, who had been a part of everything from the beginning to that point, he had been a part of that process, that he was under the law. He was accountable to the law. This baby that was born would be accountable to the Ten Commandments and all of the Mosaic laws, all 613 of the laws. Verse 5, to redeem those under the law. Now when he uses that word those, who's he talking about? You and me. That's who he's talking about. And here's why we know that. Because throughout Scripture, we are presented with this idea that God is law. And that we have all broken it. Every single one of us. That the one thing we all have in common in this gym today is that we are not good law keepers. None of us are. In fact, the truth is that you don't even keep your own laws very well, do you? How many Januaries have come and gone and you've decided to set up some laws for yourself? Some of them are dietary laws. Some of them are exercise laws. Nobody imposed these laws on you. You just decided at the beginning of the year you're going to take on some of these laws and guess what? You broke your own law, right? Some of you have broke some parenting laws that you established for yourself. Some of you have broke some marriage laws that you've established for yourself. Some of you have broken some honesty laws that you established for yourself, we are all lawbreakers. For example, most of us believe that a speed limit is a good thing. But mass confession across the gym this morning, how many of you have ever broken the law of one mile per hour even over the limit? Raise your hand. Okay? Now, those of you that did not raise your hand, what do we call them? Liars. Liars. 
And there were a few of you that did not raise your hand. Now, this is the question. You might not have got caught, but there are some in here that have. How many of you have ever gotten caught? Okay, look at that. Mass confession this morning. That's good for you rebels. You know, some of you are like that. Yeah, sometimes what happens is you look in the rearview mirror and there's someone that reminds you that you've broken the law. In fact, for me, for one year of my life, there were three times that I got reminded about this. In fact, they said, you have such a bad memory, we want to send you to the reminder course. And that reminder course is called defensive what? Driving, yeah. And the interesting thing about this dynamic is that I agreed with the law. I don't want people speeding. I don't want to die. I think it's a good thing to have a speed limit law. And yet, I broke it anyway. And then all of a sudden, the city or the county or the state, they contact you and they say, hey, hey, we got a new relationship. You're not just a citizen. Now you are a debtor. There is a debt-debtor relationship, and you've broken the law, and you owe us. And that dynamic is true between many different relationships, husbands and wives, children and parents, employers and employees. Throughout our entire life, we experience the sense that we have broken a law, and now we owe someone. Perhaps you feel like this morning that your parents owe you. Maybe you feel like your father owes you a childhood. Or your father owes you an education. Or your father owes you to have been there when you were a child. And yet they sinned against you. He sinned against you. He offended you. He broke the law of father. He broke the parenting law. Maybe you're on the other side of that equation. You've got children somewhere in this world that you are estranged from. And if you were to hear their story and we were to ask them what they would say is, you know what? You owe me a childhood. You owe it to me. You owe it to me to put me to bed at night. You owe it to me to tell me some stories. You owe it to me to have been to my football games, my baseball games, my gymnastic meets. You owe it to me. Because when there is sin, when there is something that's broken, there is immediately a debt-debtor relationship that's established. And Scripture teaches, and Paul affirms, that the same thing happens between us and God. And that leads us to our first big idea this morning that I really want you to get, and it's this. When we break the law of God, there is a debt-debtor relationship that's created. When we break the law of God, there is a debt-debtor relationship created. Now, if you remember, Paul says that Jesus redeemed those. And who were the those again? Us. You and I. You broke the law of God. Now, what does that word redeemed mean? Because a lot of times churches will give these words and they don't help people understand them. 
So what does the word redeem mean? It means to buy back, to pay for, to trade. That Jesus came to redeem those who were under the law, which means that he paid for your sin and he took the punishment. I was thinking about it this week that uh, if you have a smartphone, basically there are tons of things that you have done within your phone. You have sent nasty texts before. You have paid bills, but you've been mad at people. You have maybe yelled at someone through the phone. You've sent nasty emails. Maybe you've looked at something on this phone that you wouldn't want anyone else to see, but you went to the website and you saw it. But there's like all of this stuff, all of this sin, all of this junk. And what happens in our own lives is that it is in us and it's on us and we can't keep the law perfectly, so we have all of this and it weighs us down. And Scripture says that when Jesus came and died on the cross, it was a payment for our sin. And basically what happens is a transaction, is that all the junk in our lives gets placed upon His shoulders, and we get to go scot-free. Now, for some of you, you might think, well, that's kind of a strange concept. Why would someone do that? Well, let's face it, folks. You owe people relationally something that you can't pay back for. You can't go back to your first marriage and be the father or the mother that you had hoped you would have been. It's impossible. You can't go back to being a teenager again (coughs) and be the kind of teenager that your parents deserve. I mean, you can't go back and give them peace that they deserve because they were good parents, but you were a rebel child. There are times that we owe people something that we simply cannot pay them back. And in a similar way, the scripture says that when we've broken the law of God, when we've sinned, there's no way within ourselves that we can pay God back. We can't remove this ourselves. You see, folks, we can't go back on this phone and undo what we've already done. It's already gone out. You've said the words. You've hurt the person. You've watched the porn site. Whatever it is, it's already happened. You can't change that. And all the promises that you try to make are falling short. But the scriptures tell us that when Jesus came into the world and he died on the cross, he redeemed us. In other words, he paid back. He said, I will buy it back. I will take it back. I will place it on myself so that you can now be set free. And we look at that and we go, man, that really bites for Jesus, but for us, it's freedom. And there's no law then that can condemn us. Because even when we were lawbreakers, God said, I'll send Jesus anyways kind of a sort of a kind of a judge and a jury think about that that's what it's kind of like 
even though you're absolutely guilty. You have, God has all the evidence on you on that cell phone. And they look down and they say, you don't owe us anymore. Because when Jesus died, he paid for that sin. So in the midst of this death transaction, that's basically what happened, folks. He died taking on all your things so that you could live and you would not have to carry any of this anymore. But you owed God something you couldn't repay. And God decided, hey, I'm going to forgive you anyway. And the transaction, that transaction takes place. You see, it leaves God as the judge. It leaves me as forgiven. It leaves me kind of like, even when I visually show this, right, it kind of leaves you like I got away with something. And this concept, though, it's kind of transactional, and it seems a little bit distant for us. But Paul says, hey, folks, that's just the warm-up. That's just like the appetizer to the main course because he doesn't stop there. He goes on, and this is what he says. Because when God sent his son into the world, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those under the law, there was even more significant purpose that he wanted to give to you and me. He says, okay, you're forgiven. You don't have to go to hell. You're forgiven. You can pray to me. I, it's okay. Don't worry what you did. You're forgiven. But then he said that it was deeper than that. He realizes that it's even deeper than that. And so what he does is he goes into the culture of the time and Paul says, I've got to find the metaphor. I've got to find the word that will show these people in Galatia what it is they really get. And he said, Jesus came into the world to redeem those who were under the law. And here's what it says to redeem those under the law that we might receive, what's it say? Adoption to sonship. Adoption to sonship. In other words, it's not enough from God's perspective just to say, hey guys, you know what? I know you got all this junk in your life and I'm going to forgive you. You don't have to worry about that anymore. For most of us, we would have said, that's enough. And he said, no, 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 that's not enough. You know what you need now to know? That you have been adopted. I want a relationship with you. I can forgive someone, and I can never have a relationship with them. I mean, think about a judge who sits on a bench. There's someone who's guilty of something. They're in front of them, and they say, okay, I've read everything. I'm going to give you a second chance. I think you can do this. Go ahead. But the relationship ends, right, when the person walks out of that. The judge doesn't think about that person anymore. He goes on to the next case. You know, there's a person that's like, okay, case number 465, and they bring him in, and he doesn't think about that. But Paul said that when I looked at the birth of Jesus and I reflected on his life and his death and his resurrection, as I spent time with him, I've come to discover that he wants to give us something more than simply forgiveness. God wanted something else. He wanted a relationship with every single 
one of his created beings. And he looks around his culture and he's trying to find the word. What is the word? What is the word that I can share to the Galatians that this is what it's about? And he finally gets to the word and this is the concept, the second big idea. God wants to adopt you into his family. He wants to adopt you into his family. Now, in our culture, we think of adoption very differently. But when Paul wrote this, and when people read it, they have a very different perspective. Now, when you and I think of adoption, we think of a tiny, little, cuddly, little baby. We have a little baby over here, right here. This little, tiny, little, cuddly baby. And who wouldn't want a little, tiny, cuddly baby? Who wouldn't want a toddler? I mean, who wouldn't want to adopt a little Josiah and say, oh, yeah, this is it? I mean, adoptions are great, but here's the problem with you and I. We're not cuddly, little, tiny, little babies. We are grown-ups. That's a stretch for some of you, but you are grown-ups, you know? And no one wants to adopt grown-ups. Now, here's what's so cool. In the first century, in the Roman world, this is what happened. No one adopted babies. You know why? Because babies die. See, the mortality rate was way, way, way high. Just to have a child was like Social Security. Babies die. And toddlers, who wants to adopt a toddler? Because if you live in that world, you don't know what they're going to grow up to be like, so why would you do that? In fact, in the Jewish world, folks, there was no concept of adoption. It just wasn't there. They handled it in a different way, but it wasn't there. Now, in the Roman world, this is what happened. People adopted adults. That was the norm. They adopted adults. Rich people and people who had a lot of wealth, they adopted adults as their children. And here's why. Because if you're rich and you're powerful and you're prestigious and you look at your own children, you think to yourself sometimes, no way am I going to give my stuff to them. I mean, some of you are worried right now, aren't you? You have what is called teenagers. And you're like, seriously, they're going to have my stuff? No way. And so it's very, very uh, interesting because rich and powerful people, when they look, they just go, you know what, they had a golden spoon in their mouth. I am not going to give them my wealth, my land, or my titles. And so it's very, very common in the Roman world that you never adopted a baby, you never adopted a toddler, you adopted a well-respected, thoughtful adult. In fact, some of you might remember this from ancient history class. There was this guy named Julius Caesar, and when he died, he was assassinated actually, they opened up his will and they started reading the will, and in his will he had adopted Octavian. Basically, this was his great nephew, Octavian. Guess how old he was? He was 19 years old, and he was adopted. So they come to Octavian and they say, Octavian, we got some good news for you. Your uncle, your great uncle, he has adopted you. 
Now you have all of Julius Caesar's titles, all of his land, all of his stuff. You think that was a good day for Octavian? Yeah. Julius Caesar. You're adopted. You get everything that he has. Well, Octavian went on to be Augustus Caesar, or Caesar Augustus, who was the emperor when Jesus was born. And Caesar Augustus, he looked around at all of his kids. He's like, man, they're messed up. I'm not going to adopt any of them. Finally, he had a daughter, and he was like, but I can't leave anything to her because women are looked upon in this culture. Someone will just come in and take it all. But he had some grandchildren from her. And so he went ahead and he adopted some of the grandchildren just to put them in their will to inherit them. And then, look, listen to who he adopts. He adopts his wife's son from a previous marriage. That's who he adopts. His name was Tiberius. You know how old Tiberius was when he was adopted by Caesar Augustus? Forty years old. And Tiberius was the emperor when Jesus was crucified. So basically, folks, the bottom line for this whole adoption thing is this. That if you're a person of great wealth and you have money and you don't trust your kids, I'm open to be adopted. (laughs) Just talk to me after the celebration. We'll do the paperwork, okay? Now here's the point. When Paul wrote this to this adult crowd, he was saying, when God looked at us as adults with all of our faults and all of our failures and all of our sin, knowing that in a human Roman world that no one would adopt us because we're not worthy of being adopted by an emperor, we're not worthy of being adopted by someone of wealth and prestige because of all of our flub-ups and mess-ups, and screw-ups in this thing called life. And yet Paul said that when God looked at each one of you, once you were forgiven and redeemed and no longer a slave to the law, that once you no longer had a debt-debtor relationship, the nature of the relationship that he said that he wants to have with you is that he wants to adopt you fully as a messed-up adult. Even though he knows what you've done, everything that you'll do, he promises that he'll adopt you. Even though you broke many promises to yourself and to others and to your heavenly Father, that if you are a believer, folks, you have been adopted. And, and if you are not a believer, the invitation is open to you to not only be forgiven by God today, but to actually be adopted into his family. Not just have things forgiven, not have things made right, but to be adopted as his child. And I'm telling you, folks, the first time that the Galatians read this, and they're Romans, they're Greeks, they're not a part of the bloodline, they're like, no one wants us. And they start reading this letter, and they pass this letter around, and pretty soon all of them are like, Oh my goodness, can you believe it? It rocked their world. 
And Paul says, I'm looking back, and I've heard the story of the birth, and I've heard the story of the crucifixion, and I've heard the story of the resurrection, and I've spent time with Matthew, and I know John, and I know all these things, and now I realize what God was really up to when he sent his son, born of a woman, under the law to redeem those under the law. It wasn't simply a legal transaction, folks, but it was a relationship, purely relational. And the best way to describe it, folks, is that you, the person sitting in your seat, has been adopted into the family of God. Paul then goes on and he says, because you are his sons, or because you're his children, you're his daughters, God sent the spirit of his son into your hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. Now, folks, this is huge. If you haven't been paying attention so far because you're sleepy, this you've got to get, okay, because it's huge. This is unbelievable. Because we're related to God, but we're not related to Him through bloodline, right? Because God doesn't have blood. But the Bible says... And Paul says that here's what happened. The Holy Spirit of God has inhabited or occupied or invaded your heart. That there is a spirit inside of you that calls out what? What's the scripture say? It calls out Abba, Father. Now let me tell you a little bit about what that word Abba means. Abba is the Arabic word, and what it actually means is daddy. You see, when they wrote the New Testament in the Greek, they got to this point, and they saw the Aramaic word Abba, and they said there's no translation. It doesn't translate into Greek. There's no equivalent. So what they decided to do was, in the text, that they would just leave the word Abba, and they would add the Greek word father. So it would read Abba, father. In other words, it's just saying the same thing twice. But this word Abba, folks, has an extraordinary intimacy connected to it. It's the image of a dad cuddling with a little child on his lap. I think we have a picture of that. Or holding a child. It's that image right there that this word Abba is getting to, of holding your child so close. And here's something that's amazing. When Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, you all will remember that scene, right? This is the night before Jesus is crucified, before he's arrested, and he's in this garden, and he's going to be betrayed by his best friend, he's going to be arrested, then he's going to be slaughtered like an animal the next day, that while he's in the midst of the garden, knowing all this is coming, he says these words, Father, let this cup pass from me. And you know what the word is that he uses? Abba. In other words, it's like he's saying, Daddy, don't let this happen to me. Daddy, if you would, take this cup 
from me. And what's so interesting about this is this is the first time that anyone in the history of the world had ever talked to God, Yahweh, the Father of the Old Testament, in this intimate way. And so in our text today, Paul, who is writing 20 years after the crucifixion, he says to his audience, God's Spirit is in you. And now you can relate to God not simply as forgiver, not simply as judge, not as taskmaster, but you can relate to your one and only Father as Abba Father. And this leads to our third big idea, and it's this. God is not just some distant being, but He is your Abba Father, your Daddy. He is not just some distant being. He is your Abba Father, your Daddy. Now you might be sitting there and you might be thinking to yourself, well, why is this so important? Because if you're a Christian, folks, this is the level of intimacy that you have been invited to with the creator of the world. He says that you have been invited into a relationship that is Abba, Father, Daddy. And as Paul thinks about Christmas, God's son, born of a woman, he realizes that this is where it would ultimately lead. So he concludes by saying this, so you are no longer slaves. Now why does he say that? Well, in a slave relationship, folks, it's all about the rules, right? It's all about the five things that you must do, the four things that you shouldn't do, the two places you shouldn't go, and what happens if you do, and if you break the rules, and this is what's going to happen. He said you're no longer slaves. In other words, you're no longer relating to God through the law. You have been redeemed from the law. You are no longer relating to God as taskmaster or judge or rule keeper. You are no longer slaves. In any language or prayers or attitudes that you've ever had with God, when you act like you are a slave or that he's a dictator or he is a judge, he says, no, 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 we've got to move past that. Christmas is about moving past that. So Paul goes on to say, so you are no longer slaves, but God's what? What? Children. And this is your story, folks. You are God's child. And you have been invited to the example of your Savior and to call your heavenly Father what He is. Your Abba Father, Daddy. And it even sounds kind of weird, doesn't it? Almost maybe, almost maybe kind of sacrilegious that you would call him your daddy. But that's the image. And this, your story secondly says this, you no longer relate to God as the lawgiver, but as father, as daddy. Essentially, the whole message of Christmas is this, that God sent his son so that you could become his child. So that you could become his child. God sent His Son not just to forgive you, but to adopt you as His child. And what kind of child? It's an adult child, right? A child who's been forgiven and accepted regardless of what you've done. B. 
Because he's still your Abba, your father, your daddy. You're his child. Now let me close by asking you this question. If all of that is true, then what are you worth? What are you worth? Maybe some of you don't feel like you're worth very much right now because of something that you've done in your past. Maybe something that you did last night. Maybe you still see God as judge and jury. You see him as the law keeper and making sure that he holds you down and you're bartering with him all the time. You know, God, I used some profanity, but I'll spend more time with you in prayer today. God, I drank a little bit too much last night, but I'll tell you what, I'll I'll not drink today. And there's bartering that's going on. And each time you do this, you're relating to God as a slave. But folks, Christmas is so much more than that. It's not even about that. In fact, God looks down at us today and he says, look, I'm done with that. I'm done with this bartering stuff. This is not the relationship that you and I have. I'm done with it. You don't have to come to me that way. You don't have to look through the lens of what you've done or what you haven't done. You are my child and I am your Abba Father. And this is the foundation of our relationship. You want to know why you're worth to me? You are worth more to me than every adopted child that has ever been adopted by another human being. Because I didn't adopt you as an innocent little baby. I adopted you as a sinful teenager, a messed up college student, a person who struggled with singleness, a person of marriage or senior adult. I adopted you knowing that you're messed up and I've invited you to a relationship with me that's based upon Abba, Father. Folks, Christmas is about God sending His Son so that we could become His children. Do you know what you're worth to God? You're worth Christmas. You are worth Christmas. You're worth Christmas. If you would, when you uh, walked in today in your program, you should have received a little certificate. It looks like this. If you didn't get one, please raise your hand because we have some more over there and Cinda can get those uh, to you. So everybody pull this out because you'll feel really bad here in a little bit if you don't have one, okay? Just raise your hand. And uh, someone will get that for you. (coughs) Excuse me. Sorry about that. That woke you up. Now get your certificate. You know, nothing would give God more pleasure than if you accepted his invitation to be his adopted child this Christmas. And today, if you're ready to accept that invitation, you can simply fill your name in right here on the block, in this blocked line. It says, Certificate of Adoption. This is to certify that God adopted, and you put your name in there, into his own family by bringing this child, the child that is on this sheet, to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do, and it gave him great what? Pleasure. 
And during this closing song, I'm going to ask you to do something bold. We'll put the lights down so it won't maybe be as bold. But I'm going to be standing right over there. And like today, if today is your day, like maybe you were raised in the church, maybe you've been doing the church thing, but you've never really said, God, I want to become your child. I'm accepting the adoption invitation. I'll be right over there. And I'd like to just formalize it with a prayer. Now, if you've already accepted Jesus Christ as Lord, I would encourage you to write this down anyway. I did it this week. I wrote it down, and it's up on my cork board in front of me. So when I walk into my office every single Monday morning, and I think that I really messed up big time, I'll look at that, and I'll go, you know what? I'm adopted. Nobody's going to take that certificate away because I have been adopted. And it just reminds me who I am and whose I am. So Derek's going to lead us in a song about running into the arms of God, your Abba, your Father, of being held by Him this Christmas. And if today's your day, like, man, you know what? I've done the church, I've done, but man, I've never really like said, God, I want to be your adopted child today's day and so I'm going to ask you to stand with me here for a second and uh, I'll just kind of close this in prayer and then like I said right over here at the screen to my left you're right if you want to make that bring your adoption certificate we'll pray together and then we'll sing about running into his arms let's pray Well, Abba Father, thank you so much for allowing us to run into your arms at any time. And thank you for loving us no matter what. Father, thank you for sending your one and only Son to die on a cross so that we could be redeemed, purchased, adopted as your child. So God, now do your Holy Spirit work. Your Spirit is inside of us. Help us now to be open to doing whatever you would call us to do today. We pray this in Christ's name.